Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The coronavirus is creating novel challenges for voting rights, and around the country we're seeing challenges surrounding absentee ballots and more. Joining us to discuss the legal and constitutional dimensions of challenges to absentee voting and other issues arising out of the upcoming elections are two of America's leading experts in election law and the Constitution. Ned Foley holds the Ebersold Chair in Constitutional Law at the Ohio State University Mart School of Law, where he also directs the election law program. He's the author of the new book, Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, which he recently discussed in a great town hall program. Ned, thank you so much for joining. Yes, good to be with you, Jeff. And Michael Morley is professor at Florida State University College of Law, where he focuses on election law, constitutional law, and federal courts. He's participated in many election reform projects and is currently working on an article called Election Emergencies, Voting in Pandemics from the Spanish Flu to COVID-19. Michael, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Let's begin with a 30,000-foot perspective on challenges to absentee ballots, which are arising around the country. Ned, can you give us a sense of what is going on in the states and what the legal dimensions of these challenges involve? Sure. Well, I think it's fair to say that we're currently seeing more litigation over the voting process than ever before. Uh, You know, ever since Bush versus Gore 20 years ago, lawyers have discovered that fighting over the rules of voting might make a difference in the outcome of the election. And so if you look historically over the last 20 years, there's just been ever more intensity of of disputes over the voting process, whether it's provisional ballots or other aspects. Uh, And that was going to happen this year anyway. But the pandemic and COVID have just intensified that. And so the explosion of litigation is phenomenal. It's unprecedented. Uh, And it primarily focuses on absentee voting right now because of the sense that the electoral system's going to need absentee voting, vote by mail, given pandemic conditions. You know, there's this political debate going on right now about how much reliance there should be on voting by mail as the alternative to traditional precinct-based voting. My guess is that different states are going to handle that differently. Some states already have moved to vote by mail, even without regard to pandemic. So a state like Oregon or Colorado is used to essentially doing full vote-by-mail elections, but other states, not so much at all, and have historically had rates of absentee voting 5% or 10%, but need to shift that because of the pandemic this year. Uh, And one of the issues that's emerged, it happened in Wisconsin in their primary on April 7th, but we're seeing this now in Pennsylvania as they prepare for their June 2nd primary. Um, As the demand to use absentee ballots increases, local election officials get overwhelmed by these requests and can't deliver ballots to voters in time for them to vote them. So I just saw a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer this morning that said the officials there are 
you know, raising the alarm because they, they can't give the voters the ballots that they've requested and are afraid that some voters won't get their ballots until after the election is already over. Well, that's a recipe for disenfranchisement. And then, of course, then that raises the legal and constitutional questions about the right to vote. If voters never receive the ballots that they're entitled to, is that a constitutional wrong that requires some sort of remedy? So that's why we're seeing litigation right now in unbelievable amounts uh, all across the country. Michael, can you give us your sense of the 30,000-foot picture of litigation around absentee ballots and then perhaps take up Ned's question, if voters in Pennsylvania or elsewhere don't receive absentee ballots in time to meet specified deadlines, is that a legal or constitutional violation? Sure. I mean, absentee, as Ned said, absentee voting is going to be an essential part of our response to COVID. In order to be robust, an election system has to be able to withstand a wide range of emergencies, right? Obviously, we know about COVID the past several election cycles. We've had, we've had hurricanes hit as, as voting was about to start. We had Superstorm Sandy back in 2012. So the more different alternative channels for voting you have, the more flexibility your system has, the more likely your electoral system will be to withstand emergencies like natural disasters, like pandemics, and absentee voting is a, is one of those crucial channels. It's important to look at it both in legal and in practical terms. From a legal perspective, the issue is, is absentee voting available? There are dozens of states, a strong majority of states, which have no excuse absentee voting, which means even under ordinary circumstances, any voter who wishes to cast an absentee ballot is permitted to do so. There are other states that are known as excuse-based jurisdictions. There are approximately 14 states like that, where not just any voter can vote an absentee ballot, but the law specifies different categories of people who are allowed to vote absentee. And so one really important issue is to what extent does COVID fit within those categories? And so in many jurisdictions, secretaries of state as the chief election officer have taken it upon themselves to declare that uh, COVID satisfies the statutory requirements for casting absentee ballots. In other states, they've had to invoke either election emergency laws that grants them flexibility to, to waive restrictions on absentee voting when a natural when natural disasters or public health crises like COVID pop up. And in a few states, they've had to fall back on their general state of emergency laws, which say that in a declared state of emergency, the governor may suspend state status. And so some governors have suspended statutory restrictions on absentee voting in order to allow people to vote uh, in summer primaries in response to COVID. So looking at the legal restrictions that exist on absentee voting and seeing how under uh, whether it's the general election code, election emergency laws or the state of emergency law, how the state can respond to facilitate absentee voting as a response to COVID is an important issue issue that many states have been giving a great deal of attention to. At the same time, it's just as important to ensure that as we modify the rules governing of the electoral process to respond to COVID, as we ensure that all eligible voters have reasonable access to an opportunity to safely 
vote, that we don't go too far and unnecessarily get rid of important protections for the electoral process so that people can be assured that the outcome is legitimate, that it does actually reflect the will of the people. And so there are ways of expanding access to the ballot, of preserving access to the ballot, while simultaneously reinforcing the integrity of the election system, then striking that happy balance is, I think, one of the greatest challenges that policymakers face here. Ned, I hear Michael say that it really varies state by state who is entitled to absentee ballots and how ballots are to be counted. Let's review some of the major state challenges that are going on so that we have a sense of what the law is. So in May, on May 19th, a Texas district court in a case called Texas Democratic Party versus Governor Abbott began by quoting the Declaration of Independence and said that Americans now seek life without fear of pandemic. And as a result, it interpreted a Texas law giving absentee ballots to anyone who's disabled to be available not only to voters who are 65 and older and those with a disability which prevents them from voting in person, but to anyone on the grounds that in an age of pandemic, anyone is potentially disabled. And the judge invoked the 26th Amendment and said it was a form of age discrimination to give the ballots to people older than 65 and not younger. Tell us more about that Texas decision, what its legal reasoning was, and what implications it has for other states, if any. Sure. Uh, Well, Texas is one of the states that Michael mentioned as being excuse-based. So unlike Pennsylvania or, or many other states, you need a specific reason to be entitled to vote absentee. You can't just say you want to. And and Texas law makes disability one of those specific excuses. Uh, the attorney general in Texas interpreted the statute, the state statute, narrowly to say that simply a voter who does not hasn't tested positive for COVID but is simply afraid that they might uh, catch the virus by going to the polls, that that wasn't a valid excuse, that was, they were not themselves disabled, um, and so it couldn't be used to justify voting absentee. Um, that seemed an unduly restrictive uh, interpretation, in my view, and in the view of some other election scholars, in part because, uh, and this is getting now technical in terms of the, the plain language of the statute, but it seemed to me that there are many uh, physical conditions that are not themselves afflicted with the virus, but that are what sometimes doctors call comorbidity conditions. In other words, you're more vulnerable to the virus if you have asthma or diabetes or hypertension or obesity. And so you could imagine a voter with any of those physical conditions, and the physical condition, if I remember correctly, was the language of the Texas law, that those physical conditions put you at much greater risk of a serious problem if you ended up catching the virus as a consequence of voting. But nonetheless, the Texas Attorney General did not take even that sort of middle ground position, and that's why it's in in litigation. Uh, But many states have uh, an age-based classification for absentee voting. If you're over 65 in some states, you get to vote absentee without proof of anything else. Uh, So we're on shorter waters here. Because again, the the attitude of the federal judiciary prior to this year, for the most part, was that absentee 
uh, balloting was a privilege, not a right. You might have a right to vote, but it didn't mean you had a right to vote by mail. Um, that was an innovation that's happened, well, first at the time of the Civil War, but then over the course of the 20th century. But it was always narrowly restricted to those excuse-based reasons until after 2000, we've much more expanded absentee voting to now go to no-excuse systems in some states. But that was never a constitutional right to an absentee ballot, no matter what. And yet, what if safety is such, and health conditions and pandemic conditions are such that the only way a significant portion of the electorate can vote safely by absentee, then the old jurisprudence is confronting a new reality and the law, I think, is frankly unsettled on this point. So right now we do have these lower court decisions, but I don't think any of the case law that we've got so far this year is the last word. Both the Texas Supreme Court is looking at this, is my understanding, and, and so that will be the final word as a matter of state law. But then uh, ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court may need to sort this out as a matter of federal constitutional law. So, Michael, Ned says that the law is unsettled, and indeed the Texas District Court decision is based on an interpretation of the 26th Amendment that's contestable, at least. The judge said that the 26th Amendment, which says the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years old, years of age or older to vote, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States, and goes on to say the court finds no rational basis for a distinction between people who are older and younger than 65 for getting absentee ballots, and therefore the statute violates the clear text of the 26th Amendment, understanding that Courts may disagree on this question. Are there any federal constitutional standards or any cases by the U.S. Supreme Court that would govern this question of who is entitled to absentee ballots in states that don't have no excuses absentee ballot voting? So there's a lot of moving parts there. As, as Ned said, historically, the Supreme Court has held that the constitutional right to vote did not include the right to cast an absentee ballot. And so there have been circuit uh, court rulings involving equal protection claims where people who faced substantial obstacles to voting but didn't fall within one of the excuse categories challenged the excuse-based system, and the circuit courts have, up, have upheld them against equal protection challenges specifically because they've concluded that a rational basis existed for those classifications, that they didn't hold them to a higher standard. I think for a challenge such as Texas's, a lot depends on the facts on the ground, that restrictions on voting under conditions where people are subject to stay-at-home orders, where most businesses are shut down, but then the state is saying, nevertheless, you should go out in public to vote in person. I think courts are going to look at those types of choices much more skeptically and would be much more likely to conclude that that's an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote than if you look ahead to November, and we have no idea what things will, will look like when, when we get to the general election, but to the extent that everything has reopened, that there are no more stay-at-home orders, there are no more restrictions, life has returned more or less to normal, it would be much more difficult then for a court to step in and to say, nevertheless, uh, having people show up in person to vote would be an unconstitutional burden on their voting rights. So in, in constitutional terms, I think it's important to, to try to disentangle is there a rational basis for these laws in general, which I think the answer, again, you might disagree with them on policy grounds, but under the very permissive rational basis test, the answer is almost certainly yes. 
under certain circumstances, can they constitute a substantial burden? Again, the answer to that also is almost certainly yes, that under certain conditions, right, when the pandemic is at a, at a certain degree of risk where people are staying home, where businesses are being shut down, asking people to go out and vote in person in order to exercise their, their constitutional rights would very much look like an unconstitutional burden. Does this constitute age discrimination? I think that might be the bridge too far. Certainly at the time the, at the, time the amendment was passed, it, no one was thinking to themselves that this would make it unconstitutional for us to facilitate voting by elderly people, to facilitate voting by senior citizens. And going back to one of the most famous election law cases of all time, Katzenbach, in which the Supreme Court upheld part of the Voting Rights Act, the Supreme Court said, we're going to look at laws that burden voting, that limit voting very, very carefully. However, if a law expands opportunities to vote for a, for a population that would otherwise be marginalized or potentially disenfranchised, we're going to look at laws that expand opportunities to vote very leniently. And here, an, a, a law that says for senior citizens, for elderly people, for disabled people, we're going to make it easier for you to vote. I think that's exactly the type of expansion of opportunities to vote that the, that the Supreme Court applying cats and back would look at very permissively, would encourage states to do. Ned, we have one recent U.S. Supreme Court decision that seems on point, and that's the memorably named Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee. In that case, uh, by a five to four vote, the court refused to allow the Wisconsin court to permit ballots received before April 13th, but postmarked after Election Day, April 7th, to be counted. Justice Ginsburg, in dissent, said that federal courts should have the power to protect the constitutional right to vote by altering the way elections are conducted, including treating as valid absentee ballots postmarked after Election Day. Tell us about the Purcell principle that the court invoked, which generally says that you shouldn't have federal courts intervening at the last minute to change the rules, and then say what that decision tells us about how the U.S. Supreme Court might react if lower courts do try to change the rules to make access to absentee ballots more readily available. Yes, well, I'm um, glad you mentioned that recent case out of Wisconsin, uh, because there's so much to say about it, and it is so important as a signal for what might happen in November. I think the first thing to realize about that case is it was round one of, of a potentially two-round litigation process. The second round never happened because the, the particular election that most people in Wisconsin were focused on, a state Supreme Court seat that was hotly contested, ended up being a landslide. And so if that had been a close vote, there would have been a second phase of litigation over the count and the tallying of ballots and an argument that some ballots were missing because, again, absentee voters hadn't gotten the ballots that they were entitled to receive. So it's sort of a half a signal, not a full signal. And therefore, it's important to be cautious in, in what we interpret that signal is. Obviously, the fact that the Supreme Court was split 5-4 uh, in a case that obviously had partisan dimensions, when it's called RNC versus DNC, you know it has partisan implications. And unfortunately, the court split 
with the five Republican appointees on one side and the four Democratic appointees on the other side, that's not a good look for the Supreme Court or our electoral system, which whatever you think of the merits, we need the courts to be more impartial and more neutral as umpires. And and they were unable, unfortunately, to play that role. I think there was the possibility for some common ground that was missed just because it was moving so fast. It was emergency lightning speed litigation that in hindsight, maybe uh, the litigants and the lower courts missed a, a possible middle ground position and didn't tee it up properly to the U.S. Supreme Court. So maybe between now and November with more work, uh, we can identify some possible common ground so that to avoid that kind of 5-4 split if we get more litigation in November. So I think there's, um, you know, many, many things to be, uh, to be said about it. Um, you know, the, the key point there is in, in seeking some common ground, you know, the essence of Justice Ginsburg's dissent was the necessity to avoid disenfranchisement uh, of voters who were eligible to vote, registered to vote, and they were trying to do the right thing by applying for absentee ballots properly. The majority opinion didn't really disagree with that. They just said that the lower federal court went too far by, in essence, changing the date of the election because the election was scheduled for April 7th. Uh, and But the district court's remedy would have allowed ballots to be cast after April 7th, not just mailed after April 7th, but cast after April 7th. And that you can understand is some dangerous. I mean, if we think about the November election, it's supposed to take place on November 3rd. So we don't really want voters voting for president on November 4th, 5th, 6th, or 7th. That's a little too late. So we really need a system uh, that avoids disenfranchisement but allows ballots to be cast on time. That's frankly why I'm so worried about the news out of Pennsylvania right now, because as they're trying to prepare for their primary, they're running into the exact same problem that Wisconsin had, which is local clerks inundated with requests that they're unable to keep up. Uh, And there was a sentence in the news story that said they don't think they're going to be able to get the ballots to voters until after the election is over. Well, it's obviously too late to cast them if you have to cast them by election day, as the Supreme Court majority said. So, you know, we need some sort of solution between now and November to avoid the kind of problem that Wisconsin had, and it looks like Pennsylvania is going to have again. Michael, what are your thoughts about the reasoning of the Supreme Court decision, Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee? And what are its implications for situations in Pennsylvania if, for example, state officials were to change the rules so that ballots not received in time could be counted? How might the U.S. Supreme Court react? So I, I think that the, the RNC versus DNC case has three main takeaways. The first is I think it's almost a warning shot from the U.S. Supreme Court to lower courts saying the Constitution expressly vests primary responsibility to determine the rules governing the electoral process to state legislatures and to Congress. 
right? And for presidential elections, the Constitution expressly gives the power to determine the manner in which they will be conducted, the manner in which electors will be appointed, specifically to state legislatures. And so in light of those express constitutional grants of authority, I think the first thing that RNC versus DNC does is warn lower courts don't just substitute your personal judgment for what would be a good or a fair or the best electoral system for what the states did. There are certain circumstances in which if substantial burdens exist, if intentional discrimination exists, if the states exceed constitutional limitations, then of course, federal courts can step in and award appropriate relief. But you can't just say, I don't think the system is fair. I think there are better systems. I would have done it differently. That's not the proper role for federal courts in reviewing election laws. The second main, the second main issue, the second main thing I think RNC versus DNC does is it sets up a remedial hierarchy. And the, the, you know, Ned, Ned alluded to this. Even where states have gone beyond the constitutional bounds, even where there's a constitutional problem with some aspect of their election system, I think perhaps one of the most important holdings of, R of the RNC case is that lower courts have to start out by trying or at least consider what I call election modifications, which are changes to the rules by which the election are conducted before they take the next step of applying an election postponement, which extends or changes the date the, the, the date for casting votes or extends the period in which uh, votes will be accepted. RNC versus DNC confirms that an election postponement is a much more serious, a much graver remedy, and therefore it is inappropriate for a federal court to order a postponement in order to remedy constitutional problems unless modifications, changes to the rules within the system without changing of the election date would be insufficient. And of course, the, the, the Supreme Court at various times alluded to the fact that there was nothing in the lower court's opinion to show that other types of modifications short of an extension or a postponement would have been sufficient to, to address the problems. And so I think it's important that this case is important from a remedies perspective as laying out a hierarchy of remedies that generally you have to go with modifications unless a postponement, unless the court is able to persuasively explain why a postponement is necessary. And I think the final thing that the court doesn't expressly grapple with in the case, but is nevertheless an important takeaway, is that given the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted key provisions of the Constitution, like the Due Process Clause, like the Equal Protection Clause, not all problems that occur in the course of an election necessarily rise to the level of a constitutional violation. That particularly when there's unintentional mistakes, where there's, where you're, you're looking at just election officials being overburdened, where you're not looking at either unconstitutional state laws or intentional discrimination or intentional conduct, those types of administrative problems that to greater or lesser extents are almost inevitable in a massively and pervasively bureaucratic process like a presidential election where you're talking about over 140 million votes being cast nationwide don't necessarily rise to the level of constitutional violations. And trying to find that gray area to distinguish 
non-constitutional administrative problems, administrative even mistakes or hurt barriers from constitutional violations going forward, as Ned suggested, is going to be, I think, one of the biggest challenges that the November elections present. Thank you so much for those three very helpful takeaways from the Supreme Court decision. You said, first, state legislatures and Congress, not the court, should set the rules. Second, election postponement is a graver remedy than election modification. And third, unintentional administrative mistakes don't necessarily rise to the level of constitutional violations. Ned, I wonder what you think of Michael's takeaways. And in particular, whether you agree that postponement would be considered by the court a graver remedy than election modification and what the Wisconsin court might have done to favor modification rather than postponement. Sure. Well, I I admire Michael's work greatly. And I think his three-part analysis is just an excellent example of his analytic rigor and the why all of us in the election law community look to Michael as the leading expert on emergency issues relating to the electoral process and are so glad that he's part of our scholarly community. Uh, so, you know, kudos to Michael for for helping us think through all these issues. Absolutely. Uh, I think in addition, I'd like to build on something that he said earlier about equal protection, because I think in addition to the question about whether or not it's a constitutional problem if any particular voter either does or does not get to cast a ballot and have that ballot counted. That, that you might think of as the absolute question, not the relative question. Uh, I think equal protection inevitably requires the judiciary to look at the relative issues too. How are voters in the same election being treated relative to each other? And does that meet the constitutional standard of equality? And that that's where Bush versus Gore is this, um, you know, uh, complicated case because it purported to be very narrow holding, but it is precedent, even though, you know, its presidential status is un uncertain. And even though we're not going to have any hanging chads this year, uh, we could have differential treatment of equivalent absentee ballots. And so that the kinds of issues that Michael was just addressing could be have an extra dimension to them. So, for example, you know, to take again the state of Pennsylvania, suppose you have two voters who requested an absentee ballot on the same date, doing everything properly from their perspective and state law perspective, but the voter in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, gets their official ballot back quickly, but the voter in Philadelphia doesn't. Uh, so same, you, you could make the argument, similarly situated voters in a statewide election getting differential treatment. Now, it may not have been intentional uh, discrimination, but Bush versus Gore wasn't intentional either. No one intended some hanging chads to be treated one way versus the other way. So I'm not saying I know what the answer is. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. But I, I think, and again, hopefully we won't have any kind of problem that would cause for the presidential election to turn on these uncertain issues, but they kind of are out there. Now, Jeff, you had asked, you know, what might have happened? And this is a topic that Michael and I have been talking about ever since we saw Wisconsin unfold. Uh, and we may see this one a little bit differently, but um, what I was looking for as I watched Wisconsin happen was some sort of an emergency self-help mechanism that voters could rely upon if 
their government had let them down. You know, this can happen when you go to the polls at a polling place. If the election machines break down, poll workers are supposed to have emergency backup paper ballots so that the voters are not disenfranchised. Um, so is in the world of absentee voting, is there such a thing as an emergency backup ballot? Well, it turns out there is in federal law for military and overseas voters. Um, it just doesn't exist in state law for conventional absentee voters who live in the United States. But if I'm a Wisconsin voter and I did everything I was supposed to do, and but the government still hasn't sent me their ballot, I want to get a blank piece of paper out of my desk drawer and start writing down my choices and signing my name and doing everything else. Because what's you know why is that piece of paper not good enough if it contains the same information as the official government ballot? Uh, but nothing like that existed in Wisconsin law. So the question is, should the judge have tried to create that remedy that could have been cast by election day, so not as to run afoul of what the U.S. Supreme Court majority was concerned about, which was having ballots cast after election day. So, you know, I don't think our legal system quite has figured out all the details on this yet, but I think over the summer we should be exploring the possibility of an emergency backup absentee ballot. Because again, if Philadelphia, if any Pennsylvania voter if the news accounts this morning are correct, are disenfranchised because of overworked officials. Again, it might not be unconstitutional if that administrative problem was random across the entire electorate. But when that problem is not random and it skews one way or the other, so it affects rural voters worse than urban voters or urban voters worse than rural voters, that's where you start to get worried, I think, from an equal protections perspective, because then it seems like the election really wasn't one that was conducted equally. Michael, your thoughts about what states can do to address potential equal protection violations. You've written a piece, Election Modifications to Avoid During the COVID-19 Panic, and you've suggested that there should be three major goals about the November election. First, election officials should ensure that every legally eligible voter has sufficient opportunity to cast a ballot without facing substantially greater than usual risk to health. Second, they should maintain strong protections against fraud, which generally means not, you say, mailing absentee ballots to everyone, but mailing request forms so that people can ask for them. And third, you say elections should be conducted in ways that assures the public that it was fair and the results are accurate. Maybe fill in those thoughts and in particular applying them to Wisconsin. What could and should Wisconsin officials have done to avoid the mess there? Sure. So one important distinction, I think, between the primaries versus the general election is that a lot of states were hit with COVID, were hit with shutdown orders. This this public health crisis arose imminently as primaries were ongoing. In some cases, primaries were, were just days away, weeks away. And so they didn't really have much opportunity to plan the the um, what they the extent of what they could do to try to prevent constitutional concerns or even other problems that might not rise to the level of constitutional concerns but that we still wouldn't want to occur in the in, in the course of a fair and legitimate election there's only so much you can do one of the big advantages to the extent that we can use that word with the november election that distinguishes them from the primaries is that election officials have much more time they and you know ned had alluded earlier to the fact many states 
absentee voting is typically only 5 to 10% of the ballots cast. That there are some jurisdictions that have robust absentee voting systems. There's a handful of states that have all-male elections. But certainly across a substantial number of states, absentee voting is typically a very limited uh, aspect of the electoral system. And so for those types of jurisdictions in particular, having the time necessary to recruit the personnel needed to process absentee ballot requests, to get absentee ballots out on time, getting the counting equipment needed, the optical scan equipment needed to be able to tally you know, multiple times the number of absentee ballots as they're typically used to, to, to dealing with, having even just enough absentee ballots to mail out on a, on a time timely basis, if you're getting many times the number of requests that you ordinarily would, having the time to be able to implement those plans, uh, get the funding, hire the personnel, install the infrastructure that you need, that's one of the biggest distinctions that we're going to see between the November election versus the primaries. And you know, national associations of election officials, right? The, 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 the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, this is one of the major things that they're focusing on. So election officials throughout the nation are obviously well aware of the problem, well aware of the threat, and have been acting proactively to ensure that they're able to deal with unusual high percentages of absentee ballots. Within the scope of their legal authority, whether under the general election code or election emergency statutes, there are other types of things that, that election officials can do to expand opportunities to vote while still maintaining essential safeguards for the integrity of the process. So one of the examples that you had mentioned from my piece is sending out absentee ballot request forms automatically to every registered to every uh, person in the voter registration database at the outset of the process so that they're able to request absentee ballots right ordinarily voters it would the, the onus would typically be on the voter to contact election officials perhaps to go on the website or to, to give in a call to request the absentee ballot request form cutting that step out pushing the forms out automatically will increase voter participation, will reduce the burdens on voters to being able to vote absentee. That is an easy and to me fairly obvious step that states can take to increase voting safely without raising uh, concerns about fraud or mistake or other types of problems. Going the next step, however, and rather than sending out the blank absentee ballot request forms, sending out absentee ballots themselves that, I think, is unnecessarily problematic because we know from empirical research that voter registration records, as many as one in eight nationwide, are outdated. Either the voters have died, they were inaccurate to begin with. Oftentimes, we'll see this where third-party voter registration groups are paid based on the quantity of voter registration forms they submit. They'll, they'll register Mickey Mouse, they'll register celebrities and sports figures just to be able to, to, to meet those quotas. Or even more commonly, just the, the records are outdated. Voters have moved or perhaps there were, there were, there was some sort of error in filling them out in the first place. And if you automatically send an actual ballot 
based on every voter registration record, even with a 10% voter registration rate with 200 million registered voters, you're talking about 20 million absentee ballots being sent to non-existent people, to dead people, to the wrong address, to outdated addresses, to mistaken addresses, particularly in swing states where the election can come down to a few hundred or a few thousand votes. Having that many unrequested votes for people who might not exist, might not be there, aren't interested in, in casting them, to me, unnecessarily introduces opportunities for fraud, opportunities for misconduct, opportunities you know, for, for vote selling, vote trading, you know, vote harvesters, just collecting blank absentee ballots. Rather than introducing that unnecessary opportunity for uncertainty in the system, sending out the absentee ballot request forms lets voters say, here's where I want you to send the ballot to. Yes, I'm still entitled to vote here. And it adds that additional check. It lowers the burdens for voting while still preserving safeguards on the system. There are other, there are other examples. Automatically putting return postage on uh, the, the envelopes to return absentee ballots. That is a simple thing that election officials can do, paying for the return postage. You don't have to worry about finding a stamp. You don't have to worry about potentially going to the post office. That's something that election officials can do to reduce the barriers to voting, going a step further and allowing third-party vote harvesting, where just potentially strangers can go to unlimited numbers of houses and potentially not even identify themselves on the ballots or to election officials in order to collect the absentee ballots and return them, that again seems to unnecessarily introduce an opportunity for fraud, an opportunity for mistake into the system. Many of the recent scandals that we've seen regarding elections, including the North Carolina congressional election from 2018 that was overturned due to uh, absentee ballot manipulation by these third-party vote harvesters, allowing that seems to be an unnecessary step too far when voters are already allowed to mail the ballots back, particularly if election officials are paying the return postage, personally return them, have household members return them, unnecessarily introducing these third-party, usually partisan ballot harvesters into the process would be the step too far that marginally facilitates voting while introducing substantial opportunities for problems. So there are numerous common sense approaches that election officials can take, including to the extent that states uh, have uh, return restrictions on absentee ballots, letting them be postmarked by election day or giving voters that opportunity to drop them in the mail, return them up th through election day. Again, is reducing unnecessary barriers to voting, facilitating absentee voting in the middle of this pandemic while still preserving the safeguards that we need so that voters know when the, when the results are announced, they can be confident that they're accurate. They can be confident they actually reflect the will of the people. Many thanks for all of those suggestions and listeners who want more details can check out Michael's April 17th lawfare piece, Election Modifications to Avoid During the COVID-19 Panic, for more examples of recommended reforms. Ned, I, I want to return to the courts in our remaining time. In the event that states failed to adopt reforms of the kind Michael recommend and that you've recommended elsewhere, let's imagine what kind of litigations we're going to see moving forward. Let's focus on North Carolina, there's a lawsuit against the state's absentee and voter registration rules, arguing that people shouldn't be forced to choose between voting and protecting their health, although state 
legislatures have filed legislation that addresses some of the issues targeted by the lawsuit. It doesn't address all of them. And the lawsuit calls for longer registration period, contactless drop boxes for absentee ballots, and uh, waiving a requirement that voter registration applications are submitted at least 25 days before an election. Play out that lawsuit and what law would the North Carolina court be apply in considering it and how might the Supreme Court respond? Yeah, so I think um, key question there, and it, it applies to North Carolina, but it applies really to Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin again, Pennsylvania. Virtually every state now has a version of one of these suits. Uh, and one of the main remedies requested is changing the rules and the dates by which voters have to return their absentee ballots. Many of these battleground states have a rule that the election officials, the local officials, must receive them back from the voters by election day. In many states, it's 8 p.m. on election night. I think that's Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Those three battlegrounds all specify the time as well as the date. The litigation, the, the plaintiffs in these cases are saying that that's unrealistic, particularly in the COVID circumstances. And picking up on one of Michael's earlier points, um, one of the modifications would be uh, not that they have to be returned by election day, but at least postmarked or mailed by election day. Uh, and in fact, that was the relief that the plaintiffs in the Wisconsin case, RNC versus DNC, initially asked for. Uh, and and it seems like that component of the relief, the majority opinion in the U.S. Supreme Court also accepted. Um, what happened, though, and what we still haven't completely solved is the, the even though that was what the plaintiffs asked for at the preliminary injunction hearing, the federal district judge in Wisconsin said, okay, I hear you, but your own requested relief isn't good enough because as far as I can tell, the state officials are being honest that they're not going to get these absentee ballots back to the voters in time for them to postmark them by election day. <laughs> so what do we, if you're worried about disenfranchisement, what do we do about them? And so in the middle of the hearing, they sort of came up, oh, well, well, let's just extend the time in which they could be mailed back. Well, that was the bridge too far for the U.S. Supreme Court. So we still have around the country sort of a mismatch between the requested remedies in all these lawsuits and the problem that can, could really emerge on the ground if the inundation and overflow is just too, too great. So we, we, there is still a disconnect in the world of COVID and how to fix it that hasn't been solved. Now, to pick up on one of Michael's points, you know, maybe the conditions in November are such that it's reasonable to ask voters to actually go to the polls if they don't get their absentee ballots from the government, right? I mean, that was not really reasonable in my judgment in Wisconsin, because that was the week where the White House was saying, don't even go to the grocery store if you can avoid it. You were really supposed to stay at home, and yet they had not received their absentee ballot. Um, but I think from, a, again, back, getting back to that 30,000-foot perspective, I think we really have to worry about the possibility of an election that turns on systemic disenfranchisement. I don't think any of us want that. In other words, we don't want to wake up on November 4th and think that the only reason why we have a result is because a significant portion of American voters who wanted to vote were denied an opportunity to do that. So I think that's the problem we need to figure out how to solve. Um, and so 
I, so I think we have to ask the question, if Pennsylvania voters, again, or North Carolina voters are not getting the absentee ballots that they want to have and are entitled to have, they're not getting them from the government on time, what should happen? Is the answer go to the polls? Well, that answer might be good enough, again, for those voters for whom going to the polls is not an unreasonable health risk. And we have to ask, what is that assessment in a world of COVID if there's a second spike to the virus? Or if you're 60 years old or 65 years old, should you, no matter what, be entitled to vote absentee? But let's assume that we want to at least contemplate the possibility that a number of voters should be able to vote in person on November 3rd. That only works if the lines are not too long, and that requires poll workers. So two things happened in Wisconsin that I think was a failure. One was the failure to give the voters the absentee ballots that they requested. But the other failure was the failure to open enough polling places in Milwaukee. Only five polling locations were open out of the normal 180. And that was because Milwaukee didn't have poll workers. The poll workers just weren't going to show up in the midst of a pandemic. Now, again, we've got some time now between now and November to plan. And I'm hoping we can recruit enough poll workers to avoid this problem. But it seems to me we have to make, and Michael said this earlier, we have to make sure that every eligible voter has an adequate and fair opportunity to cast a ballot one way or the other. Uh, We can't give voters a catch-22 saying, oh, sorry, you don't have a reasonable chance to vote absentee because we're not giving you a ballot on time. And sorry, you don't have a reasonable chance to go to the polls because the polls aren't open in your neighborhood because we don't have poll workers. I mean, that's not America. America allows its voters to vote, or at least that's what we tell ourselves and have told ourselves for the last 50 years since the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, we have a challenge. It's going to be hard to do this given the constraints of the pandemic and the need for some more financial resources. But, you know, when November comes, can we say to ourselves honestly that we've met that challenge, that we really did give every voter their fair opportunity to vote? Michael, one last legal question. The Purcell principle that the court, the Supreme Court invoked was based on the idea that federal courts shouldn't intervene at the last minute to change election rules. Say a court in North Carolina or Michigan or Pennsylvania decided now that the deadline had to be extended so that ballots that weren't received in time to be mailed by election day could still be counted or something along those lines. How would the Supreme Court respond to a change or postponement in the election rules that was ordered far in advance? You're, you're absolutely right. You've identified perhaps one of the most challenging issues with election emergency litigation, and that concerns the timing, right? You, you've mentioned the Purcell principle, which is the notion that we don't want federal courts changing the rules of elections right before the election happens. And so even if there is a legal problem or a constitutional problem, the Purcell principle will often counsel the court, don't issue an injunction now or don't issue an injunction that becomes immediately effective now for an election that's only a few days away. Rather, have the injunction be purely prospective for all future elections after this one so that we can let the current rules stay in place. We don't upend the the, the, the system by trying to 
impose a whole new set of rules at the very last minute. Another very closely related principle is the notion of latches, which is where plaintiffs have delayed if they've waited too long before bringing a lawsuit and thereby uh, prejudiced the defendants, made it unnecessarily hard or burdensome for the defendants to comply. That can be another reason for a court to refuse injunctive relief or to refuse to change the rules governing this election and would apply its changes only prospectively. On the other hand, like Ned pointed out, where the question is, will voters face a substantial burden in voting? Will the pandemic pose an unconstitutional risk to voting rights or to, or to people's health? That is an intensely fact-intensive question. And, that's, and as we look ahead to the November election, that's not one I think a court can reliably make predictions about at this point. That just, it's, it's almost like Goldilocks, right? If you wait until right before election day, it's too late and you'll run into Laches and Purcell principle problems. If you try to sue now, based on the allegedly substantial burdens that COVID will be posing in October and November, I think almost certainly the case is not ripe yet, right? You have another jurisdictional problem of ripeness that it's purely speculative what the situation is going to be like. Will we have a vaccine? Will we have a treatment? Will there be a resurgence in the fall or will instead every, everything drop off? That I, don't, I, I think that a court is likely to say there's so much uncertainty right now that we can't constantly confidently say, certainly by a preponderance of the evidence, that it's more likely than not that in-person voting or the current rules governing absentee voting would be an unconstitutionally substantial burden come November. So I think this type of litigation would have a greater likelihood of success and it would be more appropriate for a court to, to step in in that middle area, perhaps you know, late August, early September, where you're not right on the cusp of the election, but also the, the time period between the lawsuit and the election is much shorter. So you have a much more accurate and comprehensive view of what the facts on the ground are, what the burdens for voters are. One one thing I, I will point out about that case in particular, the notion that the voter registration deadline poses an unconstitutional burden, I think is perhaps one of the hardest uh, aspects of the case for the plaintiffs to prevail on, simply because voter registration can be done by mail. There's nothing preventing people from registering to vote now. They could even request the voter registration forms be mailed to them. The notion that it's unconstitutional to give people from I mean, I, I would say now through 25 days before Election Day, but they could have even registered before now that there's something unconstitutional under these circumstances about having a voter registration cutoff of 25 days before Election Day. I, I think that, that that no matter when they bring the lawsuit, the, the plaintiffs will will have a very, very hard time trying to to prevail on the notion that there 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 hasn't been enough time between now and 25 days before Election Day to register. Thank you so much, Michael Morley and Ned Foley, for a really illuminating and sobering discussion of the law and policy challenges regarding absentee ballots and the election. I'm eager to have you both on again before November to help us think through these crucial questions. And until then, Michael, Ned, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Michael Marcus and Lana Ulrich. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, and the devotion to lifelong learning of people like you from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.